In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Life podcast. We are here with the whole team, and we are going to hopefully get into some great debates. We've got a myriad of different positions about different things, and uh, let's just start off going around the panel. We'll start off with Kevin. Kevin, can you introduce yourself for those who may not be aware of how great and who you are? You can't. You can't leave like that. Um, <laughs> all right. My name is Kevin Holt. Is my fabricated shortened last name um swiss born u.s grown race partially uh nomadic type person currently living in bali trying to be a writer and figuring out how i can sustain living in bali still it's been a year and a half and i'm trying to figure out how to keep the money coming in and you've Thanks got one book out yeah you got what what the tell them the, the name of your book the first one yeah, first book's called Young, Successful, and Miserable. Uh, I wrote it after the, my second time quitting the corporate world, and it was an accumulation of frustration, rage, and knowledge I'd gained during that time, and I poured it all out in like two weeks. And uh, now I'm working on a second one, which is about divorce and stuff like that, which you guys have offered to read. I, I'm almost letting you down. I wanted to get it out last week. Hurt my back. I haven't done anything. Hopefully this week I'll finish the draft. Nice. Looking forward to it. Ben, can you introduce yourself for people who may not have, uh, might, might not be aware of who you are? Uh, Benjamin George. My website's Benjamin C. George. Uh, I have a book which initiated all of this called No Absolutes, The Framework for Life, uh, at least George and I's conversations. Uh, and there's a podcast that'll be happening shortly uh, under the same veil. So, Fantastic. Ranga. What, what? Tell us about yourself a little bit, buddy. Self-introduction makes me anxious. So I begin to wonder what, why is that? And then it's because uh, lack of a solid answer. So it's pretty difficult yeah. to go there. And uh, it seems very uh, 
you have to be very biased about it. So, yeah, you got to animate. You got to animate your ego to participate in the dream state to some extent. I understand most, what you're saying. Most narcissistic move I ever made was having my own website with my name on it. It felt weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Paul, tell us yeah. about yourself, man. For those who may not know you, Paul in the dark over here. Why don't you tell the people who you are? Yeah, my name is Paul Apau. Um, live in uh, live on the island of Maui in the state of Hawaii. And um, yeah, not much more than that. Uh, avid reader, I love to read. Beekeeper, nice. right? Beekeeper, yeah. Beekeeper. Macadamia farmer. Right. May I ask you a bee question? Yeah. What's up? Because um, I had a, my uncle's godfather was a beekeeper in Switzerland, and he was convinced, even then, like twenty years ago, that cell phone towers were screwing up his bees um, navigation. And I'm wondering what you think about that, especially at 5G and stuff like that. Yeah, um, that really something I've, um, you know, I do honeybee research, but, um, you know, not that type. Our, the stuff I do is more about um, systemics, you know, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, stuff like that. But, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of beekeepers who, who would agree with your, with your grandfather. Um, right. dead. Yeah, it was my uncle's godfather. Oh, it's a bit of a connection. Yeah. He's been dead for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know I know a bunch of beekeepers who would agree with that. Um, nothing I've really done a lot of you know research on. Um, I kind of just stick to my my own little world. But um, yeah, but I've heard that. I've heard a lot of cool. beekeepers say that. Do you think that translates? Like, if if that's true, if those towers mess up the rhythm of the bee or their rhythm. Wouldn't they also mess up ours? I mean, it's possible. Um, again, not something that I've done a lot of, you know, looking into. But um, I mean, honeybees are really delicate, you know, little insects, and um, that have you know pretty complicated forms of communication that are um, you know pheromone driven and and also um, you know uh, movement driven and the slightest things tend to mess them up pretty easily, you know, but, but it's the same thing when people ask me about like the work that I do, um, you know, with, with research on it, with honeybees is, um, you know, is this what's killing honeybees? Is this the problem with honeybees? Is it colony collapse disorder? Is it, I, you know, it's accumulation of all types of things. Just like, you know, since, industrialization we've been doing a lot of damage not just to honeybees i believe but to a lot of things yeah, um, it, if, if you took away cell phone the towers would uh honeybees be better off like you know i don't know maybe slightly it, so it sounds to me like you're advocating for people to go out and tear down 5g towers paul is for people to you know make you know little changes in their lives that help to support, you know, the environment, even if it's just the stuff that they do at home, you know, um, to help, you know, bring back honeybee populations to, you know, to, to a much greater level than where they are. They're in massive decline all around the world for, you know, a while now. You know, I, I raise queens and I tell people it's like putting a little Hello Kitty Band-Aid on a cup that requires like 100 stitches. Hmm. Um, you know, we need to we need to fix things um, moving forward. I mean, it's 
it's pretty detrimental to honeybees and honeybee populations that we do that. It is. That is. What, um, so Ben brought up a big topic that I kind of wanted to start off with today. The, it's the idea of divine right. You guys familiar with this idea? This idea that was popular in the medieval ages where someone who rules over the people strictly because they were ordained by God or by a higher power. And we saw this week the queen has passed. And I, I believe that, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't they rule by divine right? Like who died and made them king and queen? Mm -hmm. I think, think that of, was the original mandate, right? Right. Now, I'm not sure if they still cite that. I, I didn't watch the ceremony. I'm not actually too intimate with the monarchy. Um, right. Mostly because I don't care for, you know, people who think that they can rule over other people. So, <laughs> um, but I think that was the original mandate was that they were, you know, in, in that, and it's not just the, the British Empire, but that was, you know, it's it's been many of the monarch monarchical systems in our past. Uh, that they were, you know, divinely instituted by God to be able to rule. Which I thought was an interesting topic because I think it very much applies to many different aspects of what we're looking at in society today. Like what? Like what else do you think it applies to? Well, I mean, you know, uh, we've kind of, with the advent of the internet and technology and, and the movement towards you know uh, scientific knowledge and things like that we've created different uh, religions if you will uh and one of those religions is certainly politics another one is money um you know uh, from a personal experience i i took a startup through a, a program uh and i was blown away by how much it was almost like a religious uh, Sunday sermon church going experience. It was people, you know, expressing themselves, giving testimony, kind of, you know, you know, and it was very much uh, just completely similar to that. Uh, and I've been, you know, uh, involved in a few corporate things that I've, I've noticed the same thing. And so I think, you know, there is, and, and you know, look at like a person like Elon Musk. He's exalted by many people, right? Uh, you know, so I think our detachment from religion as kind of a, you know, an institution has moved that that void that people typically have to different directions. And I think a lot of those directions kind of directly apply to this whole kind of divine right. Like you have these guys, these people with all of the money, all of the resources dictating all of the rules. By what account? Well, you know because they made it, because they were successful, because they achieved all of this. It's similar in aspects to kind of that older system, but kind of uh, diverges into modernality. Yeah. What do you think, Kevin? Is that, what do you think about, you've traveled to different places, you've seen Japan, you know, I know they have an emperor there. I'm not too sure about their government, but do they have some sort of divine, yeah. right? They used to, and I believe that was the whole reason for the sort of the excuse that the that the U.S. told itself for the bombing, the nuclear bombs, because that and that. Uh, sorry, in those days, he did have the right, divine right, and the people were going to do whatever he said. So when he said that, okay, we're going to defend Japan to the last man, 
that would have happened. Like the people were just completely devoted to doing whatever he said. So the calculation was that, well, we're going to lose a million soldiers trying to invade Japan and untold numbers of people in Japan defending it. So we'll, we'll do the bombs and hopefully mitigate that loss. Whether or not that was the right decision, I don't know. But yeah, that, that they did have that tradition. I don't think it's the same anymore. They don't. It's like the Queen now. It's sort of just a, a theatrical post, and they have a prime minister who kind of runs as a dictator, and they have the emperor that just uh, that just chills and is responsible for the years because they still count it in emperor years over there. Mm. That's interesting, Paul. I what remember about my birth. Sorry. Showa fifty-seven, Showa Emperor Year fifty-seven. That's what I was born. <laughs> yeah. Paul, what about the king and queen of Hawaii? Did they rule by like divine right? Um, I mean, they were divine. I mean, I think that's the difference, like what we're talking about here with like Japan and like ancient Egypt and then like European kings and queens that I think it's my understanding that like it's mostly in Europe where it was like a given um, right to rule by God, divine right, and then a lot of the other places around the world, kings and queens were divine. Um, and I think that may be true with Japan too. I don't know, maybe Kevin, you could point more to that, but yeah, um, that he had divine right back in the, you know, well, they actually, I think what he's alluding to is that they actually like, is kind of like the Pope, you know, like as soon as you're the Pope, you're yeah. kind of a different level of human type idea. You know, you are divinity at that point. Yeah, like, you know, ancient pharaohs were divine. Right? They weren't given the right by something, you know, from a god to, to rule. They actually were divine. But what do you mean by they were yeah. divine? Isn't that just semantics? Right. That that was what they that was what they called, you know, the rulers at that point. Like that so there was no distinction between like a god and the rulers. A ruler was God essentially. Well, like wasn't it in like like with like European kings and queens that it was the given the right to rule politically over the, over people. And then oh, I see. we're actually given the right, you know, to speak for God. Right. And it was kind of a different thing. Whereas like in Egypt, you know, they were like born of the gods. gods. They were actually yeah. divine themselves. Um, I don't know, I kind of understand it to be a little bit different thing. I think in Japan it was the same way too, is that the emperor was divine, not given rights to rule by God, but actually was God. Wow. Which, See that? Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, which begs the question, you know, what, is that, what does that imply? What does that mean? I mean, means, you know, go ahead, go ahead. I think it just means that there was a a ruthless dictator in charge that lied to everybody, right? Like that's what that means. Like I'm smarter than you. I can read. You guys are dumb. I'm the king. I'm like, why? Because God said so. In fact, I'm God. And if you do anything to me, I'm going to bring hellfire on you. So get back to the fields and start working. <laughs> I would say by and large that was, you know, mostly the case at least from my purview of history now there are different exceptions you know there were rulers who were really great to their people but at the same time i you know i it, i found it you know i would agree with you george i think it was a lot of an excuse to take advantage and you know uh reap resources and uh you know maintain power structures 
Yeah, I come to the idea of like, we've all heard that I'll put the fear of God in you. Like why, if you fear God, because God will kill you. So then might God just be another name for the almighty, powerful? I mean, those two things can be synonymous. So if you are the most powerful, then you become God, right? They, I heard mother is the word for God on the lips of a child, right? Because mm-hmm. that, that the mother sustains life that could kill that child. But so too, if that is true, so too then the word for God on the lips of a worker would be the state, you know, in some weird way, like maybe back then or the king or the queen. But yeah, I, I, I think now, especially now where we, some of us are very fortunate to live in a world where we have so much, we have so many resources. Um, yeah, where, damn, I should bring Dan in here. Uh, Dan Hawk says manifest destiny, right? Like, you know, you just decide to run across the, the states. You just decide to run across the West and whatever you conquer, you become God at. I don't, does anybody think that there should be, people should have a divine right to rule? Anybody on the panel think that someone should have that right? I don't think so. And if you look at the history, it just goes, if you try to look at it in a bigger picture where the average IQ of a human being is increasing, or it doesn't have to be for the good always. But uh, in this case, I feel like the general tendencies start changing, but very slowly, right? It, it's not like evolution doesn't happen at a single point. It's a stretch of time, right? thousands and thousands of years. So that, that change is always there. Sometimes when I get frustrated or angry by that part, uh, that's the reminder that things are changing. Just the expectations within me is too fast, right at a global level. Well, when you when you see a solution, you know it's it, it's one of those things where it's like, well, can everybody see this? Uh, oh, they can't. Oh, 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 what do they have to learn to see the solution? Oh, it's actually everything that I've spent the past years of my life. Doing. Oh, okay. Well, you know, there is a, there's a process to all of these things. Do you think that, like, so when we, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think we we discussed it once before. It seems like the challenge is how do we increase self-governance while expanding the in-group at the same time? Because clearly the more rulers you have, the more patriarchal leadership you have, the less individual freedom you have. So I'm fully in alignment with the idea of a self-governing, what George is talking about, blockchain-based decentralized model of existence but how do you stop the tribalism that will probably result from that's resulting from history right we were the small groups we were constantly battling each other for stuff we got a, some guy some strong guy who came in took it all over made it stable fought another strong guy it slowly expanded like that and there was always conflict so i guess the question is is conflict inevitable or do we have a way to do what i said expand the in-group while keeping the units small so you know, I, I think at one level, conflict can be viewed as inevitable. Uh, however, when you put it into the context of a global situation where people now are connected and people do, you know, uh, they, they love the internet, 
right? They love the, the aspect of more information. And so we have these kind of institutions in the world now where people might be reluct more reluctant to let them go than say in the past where the only as aspects of their lives were, you know, maintaining a farm or being part of a guild or something like that. Because of the greater opportunity, I think it does potentially give us the opportunity to surpass the the insurmountable conflict, um, at least for a time. Uh, and so the way I looked at it and the way I kind of formulated it is you have to be able to compete in the marketplace, right? You have to be able to compete, compete in the wide world. And if you can compete in that wide world and you can create individual wealth within that system, that will become a duplicatable model that then will become almost spread like a virus. Because why would I not want to be part of something that's creating individual wealth, individual liberty, individual freedom, or as opposed to being attached to the system that's telling me what I can and can't do and is holding me down, that is barriers of entry, et cetera, et cetera. I think you create a, basically a magnetic environment where people say, hey, those are the things that are important in life. Those are the aspects of life. That's the philosophy of life that I want to pursue. So I'm going to see how I can be a part of the system. And if we create the right thing where it is focused on individual wealth, where each person's um, opinions and ideas are represented in the green and, and being able to, you know, we don't have to make this network of podcasting in order to be heard type idea. Uh, I think that is maybe the element that allows us to kind of hop over that conflict. What do you say, though, to the idea that <clears throat> conflict is the mother of invention? It seems that like so many wars, and I don't necessarily believe this myself, but it seems to me there are lots of theories that say, we must be at odds with each other so we continue to move forward the idea of technology. And if you look at the technology that we have, most of it has come from war. Maybe that's because we develop it for war, but it's still coming out of conflict and war. And when two people, be it expert boxers or expert debaters, come together and fight, be it verbally or physically, the outcome of that tends to be like a sharper a sharper form. What do you think about that? I would say that necessity is the mother mm. of invention. Okay. And so, you know, obviously conflict is going to breed necessity, but necessity comes from other places as well. I think uh, war was an expression of conflict. I think conflict will continue to happen throughout human uh existence let's say because with our limited consciousness we perceive some way and in order to go ahead like progress as a humanity you need to have conflicting opinions and take that but people who are stubbornly caught up in it if they are caught up in it that's the result in this war because i'm gonna if i cannot convince you i kill you kind of stuff but now it's changing we can agree to disagree and well, I think it's also changing too, back to our previous conversation about language and how that influences things. You know, instead of having us to wage war with our fists, 
um, you know, we we can articulate ourselves and present evidence and have, you know, differing opinions, but then analyze those opinions. Uh, as long as people are willing to come to the table, I think we have that option that doesn't necessitate conflict. Yeah. It almost, like, why not... What do you think about the Malthusian concept of like, let's just kill half the people? Like, I'm not saying I agree with that, but I think that there's a, I think that there's a group of people that do think that, you know, when you start hearing terms about like useless eaters or low IQs, and again, it's not, I'll just, I'll just be devil's advocate and pretend I'm a Malthusian. Like, look, we need to get rid of all these dummies, okay? There's a bunch of dummies. They don't do anything. Like, they can barely talk. They don't do anything. They just take up space and they're, they're outpopulating people that are actually doing stuff. We should just get rid of all of them. Let's just starve them. The world will be a better place. But what are, what are we supposed to do? We not feed them. We don't still send them. We, we pretend that there's a problem in Ukraine and then we don't feed them. We fill them off without them knowing it or acknowledging it. I wonder what that could be. <laughs> we can have a virus. How about a virus? <laughs> Oh boy, boy. Yeah, we're getting into the weeds now, boys. kidding. <laughs> but would that work? I mean, if you could lower the Earth's, if you could just drop down the population by, I don't know, one third, if you could get rid of one third of people that are not productive, would that change the world for the better? Be more jobs, maybe. No, Rents because. In, in you know when you make the decision of killing the unproductive people it's with the idea that our goal as a human is to be productive that's a good point what, if our goal is to be lazy then they they should be killing the productive ones <laughs> i but think that they are though aren't they already doing that <laughs> by non-participation <laughs> yes administratively yeah <laughs> administratively <laughs> i think it's about bringing them to the table I think I agree. all of unproductiveness comes from system and not from individuality. Yeah. I would I would concur with that. And uh, you know, the other another more uh, perhaps humanistic aspect of that is you know, the responsibility of you know, the populace to everyone else is not hey, you guys aren't up to snuff we're going to kill you all. You have to analyze why these people aren't up to snuff. Why are why is there people who are poor? Why is there people who are uneducated? Why are there people who are lower educated? Why why do all of these things happen? And the reality, I think, of that situation is is once you start to really evaluate those aspects of society and culture, you see that the fundamental reasons typically fall back to you know the pursuit of money and power for a lot of a lot of these aspects of society um you know the for instance the american education system was founded by a communist guy who was trying to found a system that wanted to create more worker bees we adopted that <laughs> right you know so what's the you know when we're, when we're actually talking about that the actual solution is a much longer term solution which nobody wants because politics are very snap 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 and four years here four years here i have to campaign about this and this and this and if i can't fix it in a very quick time frame it's not anything that i need to talk about uh but the real solutions are why do these problems exist in society 
And when you solve those solutions, you eventually solve the grander problem. But you have to start with solving the root of the cause. And we know this intuitively. We just don't like to acknowledge it uh, politically or financially. And there's another angle to this in that people are surviving today. How do I put this? People are existing today that maybe otherwise would not have made it because we have systems in place to enable them. Like a paraplegic 200 years ago is not going to make it, right? right? But now we've got all this support in medical care. I'm not saying we, that's wrong. It's great that we have the ability to prolong life where it wouldn't have otherwise existed. But yeah, a lot of people wouldn't just wouldn't have made it. Right. And the sad part of that part is that there is an altruistic and humanistic aspect of it, but there's also a monetary aspect to it. Those people are now an indentured servant to that system where the funds of not only them, but their, you know, people who love them are going to end up in that pipeline of, of you know, monetary wealth. And it's not going to be transitioned to the family. It's not going to spread out, you know, to the community. It's going to uh, an entity that does not have any care, concern, or investment in prolonging those 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 individual lines, those those family lines, those communal lines. They're focused on just accumulating more and more wealth. I mean, we just saw that greatest transfer of wealth that we've ever seen in human history. Well kind of recorded anyway. <laughs> yeah. It it almost seems to me that you know, if there is it almost seems to me that the underclass, be it people that have had a pre-existing condition or that fought through the cracks in education, like they just become they just become fodder for the system like all of a sudden now they're dependent on the medical system but the medical assistant needs them as fuel to continue to to fire their profits you know and it's mm -hmm. it's almost the maybe that is the way our society is run like we are just we're no longer looked at being productive people we're just looked at being numbers we're just looked at being you know big what data. yeah big data you know there's it kind of strips away the humanity resources, resources yeah that's a good good way to think about it. It makes me wonder if 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 this move towards science and it, it it makes me also wonder if you know this move towards science if we're just resources and we can be looked at like numbers then what's to stop the process of eugenics from happening, you know, or like it just becomes easier to to implement these ideas based on science to create productivity, if we're already going down that road, if we're already looking at ourselves stripped of humanity, what's to stop us from being like, you know what? You have to have a license to have kids. You have to have this to have kids. Or, you know, it just seems like that's kind of the road we're going down unless we make some sort of change. What do you guys think? It's like uh, this, right? Your uh, mental wavelength is kind of... Uh kind of traveling in the ship with other mental wavelengths and few people control that, right? So regardless of how much ever we try to individualize and come out of it, there is some part of dependency still there. It's a lot of uh, sacrificial things we might have to do to completely get into a recluse or a, you know, so a certain amount of, let's say, normal life as a, uh, us tied along you know the system 
So we can get rid of it. What's that? Sorry. I thought you were finished. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, that was it. Just... Oh, no. So I'm saying these are these are tough questions. Like, these are kind of questions that really make me question what I think because I do like the free market. I'm in favor of capitalism generally, but the logical extension of that is that eventually private ownership will own all of the factors of production if we go fully AI. And then what do you do with the 80 or 90% of people whose jobs no longer exist because they can't all be AI mechanics or robot repair people? And I don't know how you we're going to, I mean, you think, for example, like if we were able to figure out how to farm and take care of all our foods with AI, is it fair that somebody owns all of that? Or is there a way that we can like blockchain solution or whatever, where we distribute ownership of that process and we all get the fruits of that? Well, yeah, there's totally a way. I think that it's not like Google made Google. It's like, <coughs> like we, we all pitched into that. Like if, if you paid taxes in America, you founded Google. Like they were founded by the taxpayer. Once it became profitable, they spun it off into a private company. They probably grew it a lot more, but everybody paid into that. So everybody should be getting like a freedom dividend from that. And if AI runs everything, well, okay. So how about this? Like if we have, if you have uh, like in a car plant, they have different robots that make different parts. Why don't those robots pay taxes? Why don't those robots pay a percentage of the profits into the system? And then we get that. Like we all built it. You know what I mean? Like we all built this whole system, but now there's a few people that are like, actually, we built it. It's actually, it's, I, I own the company, you know, like that's bullshit. No, you didn't. You are the front man for it, but everybody else kicked in. And I, maybe that's the, maybe that's the end result is that the people that are consolidating power end up just being murdered because they're so greedy and selfish. Like, I'm not saying we should it do that. It wouldn't be the they'll, first time in history. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll never tax those machines, but they'll give them rights to vote. So, you know, I, I think we do face a, a precipice here where if we do not come up with a system that does enable the individual to actually benefit from these things, we are going to end up in a situation that Kevin just described where you are going to have a small collective group of people who accumulate all uh, everything of all of the resources, all of the control, all of the systems, all of the supply chains. And, you know, it, we're already seeing that today. It, it's not too far of a distant future. I mean, you know, when you look at the amount of wealth in the world and where it's distributed, it's not hard to see that where this direction is going. And then if you plot it over time, it's really easy to see where it's going. Uh, so, you know, the reality of that is, you know, you have to you have to come up with something that competes in the marketplace. You have to be able to outcompete the competitors because right. that's the only solution that is where you can come to some sort of, uh, you know, redistribution of funds, if you will, without conflict. Otherwise, you have to go murder those people. <laughs> you know, it's it seems like manifest destiny. If we look at what happened, like, you know, Dan Hawk was telling us a little bit about Indians being moved to reservations. And like, if you look at a smart city, it's kind of a new age reservation. Like they're moving, they want to move people off the land and into a smart city. You want to move people off the land and into a reservation. Mm -hmm. And like when you, you know, it, 
it seems similar to me. And why wouldn't it be if history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes? It's very similar to see that happening. I agree. That's a nice way to put it. I Because I don't think it repeats the exact same way. Right. It goes in a spiral. So there are a lot of similarities. So it feels like so much is happening, at the, but there is a lot of difference as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think that I think that Paul. Why do you think that they would never tax the robots? Like, why? If if we could get like a vote, I mean, you could theoretically put out, especially in today's time, you could start a go. Maybe not a GoFundMe, but you could get a petition out there and get enough people to sign it that says, "Hey, we think that the robots should be paying our taxes." Like, why wouldn't that work, Paul? That was kind of more of a joke, George. <laughs> well, I, you know, I I would chime in and say because uh people who are power hungry typically like to absorb more power they don't like to distribute distribute it so i think uh you know any sort of vote in that instance that's going to cut into the bottom line of not just them but their shareholders is going to be heavily resistant yeah that's a great point but don't you get to the point too i think i remember hearing um being a union guy like I am, I remember hearing a story about Eugene Debs, who was like a great union leader, and Henry Ford. And so Eugene Debs and Henry Ford are walking down the Ford plant when all the all the new um, robot arms came in. And Henry Ford looks at Eugene and he goes, hey, Eugene, how are you going to get those robots to pay union dues? <laughs> and Eugene Debs says, hey, Henry, how are you going to get those robots to buy your cars? You know what I mean? Like, so don't we kind of get into that catch 22 where, Hey, great. There's, there's not enough jobs for anybody, but guess what? And then there's no more commerce. You know, you're now you're, you've, you've, you have controlled everything and now no one's buying any, anything. Cause they don't have any money unless you give them money. And maybe that's the, that's the debate happening with, with well, giving people income right now. Right. That's the, you'll own nothing and like it idea. This is that you're going to get a monthly stipend to go off and play in the metaverse to you know buy your digital stuff and go off in a ready player one experience and collect all these things when in reality you live in a box you know you know a two by two cubicle um what that does from on a consumer level and capitalism is you know i think i think you're right i think that devastates the system but at the same time you know we have come so far with robotics and automation and artificial intelligence that what is the system what is it created for to begin with why does that whole supply chain system exist because you need labor to extract resources to provide the ever encroaching aspect of technology and advancement things like this but what happens if you no longer need to labor what happens if you you can extract resources automatically and process resources automatically and build things automatically well you don't need a labor now, there's the utopian future of this, which is like a Star Trek, right? Uh, and there's many dystopian parts of this, which I think when you factor in the human factor of all of this, I, the dystopian ones kind of look more realistic. Uh, and, that's, and that's a dangerous and scary you know, idea, but I think that's the reality we do face. No, I think it's uh, both of uh, utopian and dystopian happen at the same time. It's the movies just differ on which observer they are showing. <laughs> when the, the you know when the 
you see all these uh, superhero movies where they are attacking there are millions of people who die which we don't focus on so and as an average person i think we would have to watch more dystopian films to be prepared but yeah if you were in a different boat i think it's different i think that there's a, like what does it say about our society when all the biggest movies are like the fantasies of a 12-year-old boy like i'm flash i'm the incredible hulk i'm like they're all like every single top movie is like a marvel book which is like the fantasy of a 12-year-old boy who has no power like is that something people are doing on purpose like are we trying to infant are we trying to make sure that every man in america is an infant child that just sits around and plays video games and reads comic books and pr- wishes they were Spider-Man or the Incredible Hulk. Like that's, that's like all the top movies. Like that's where all the money goes. Or is that who's running our world? Is like these, ch- these man boys that like, they, they've just fantasized about having all this power. And now they've somehow found themselves as like Dr. Evil or like, you know, Lex Luthor. Superheroes. Yeah. Um, or they're trying to be superheroes. I mean, I think that the world, you know, you can see the world around you if you look at it, and you need not look far to your nearest billboard to see what people think of society. If you, if you look at media as a as a mirror of society. I mean, women love these movies too. My sister and my mom, I think, like them even more than I do. And I heard Jordan Peterson talk about this once. He says that the comic book, fit, I guess, trend we're in now, the last 20 years, where that's all that comes out, it seems, is to replace a, what he considers a godlessness in the void of um, losing faith in religions. And these comic book characters are demigods. They've got these powers. They fight for good. And that's his theory. I don't think the uh, fantasies of 12-year-old boys are a lot different than the fantasies of grown men. Not too many men I've met. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? All these uh, things on global level as a group, they are not. Let's say, what's that? No. Um, right, go ahead, go ahead. So the movies, right? On a it, it is affected on a group dynamics, right? People, I don't think it's run by the minds of twelve-year-olds, uh, but rather that this is what brings in money. Money is the driving factor in almost everything. So that goes back to the if someone is going to invest, they're going to want higher returns. That's all they care. It's not about producing good quality. That's not an average person's mind, I feel like. Some people go out of the way forgetting financial concerns for quality, but most of it comes back to what what's going to bring this investment 10 is to 1 or something. And when they go back to the data, it's there. So it's like it's going to be a self-fulfilling loop until a certain group of people really branch out of it. A diminishing one at that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think uh, to that point, I think we are seeing that diminishing loop. You know, they they have gotten so constrained by the aspect of money that, right. you know, uh, when they look at the data, uh, to your point, is that they're like, well, we can't stray from this because this was half a billion dollars that we made, net, you know, gross off of this or whatever. So I think it is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that instance. Um, but I do think there is a certain aspect to, uh, you know, what that says about the culture that we're, we're putting out there. Because, yeah, you know, uh, when we grew up, science fiction was one of those things where it was all over the place. There was many different science fiction things. Uh, you know, there was all the Star Treks and all that stuff. And there is a, a saying that science fiction eventually becomes science fact, right? 
Uh, if you if you go back to the previous ages of science fiction, those are a lot of the things that we have technologically available to us today. Uh, so, you know, and then if you look at what uh, the richest people in the world are spending a lot of their money on, it is to try to become superheroes. They're trying to prolong their lives. They're working on immortality. They're the transhumanist movement. There is all these things where... You know, that's where these 12-year-old boys who never grew up and became men, I'll take that, that debate anytime, anybody, uh, you know, they are going down this pathway of, of you know, societal destruction, but definitely, you know, trying to achieve these different things, you know, outside the bounds of culture and outside the bounds of, of, of you know, what that means to everybody else. Yeah, I agree. What here's an interesting question. Dan Dan brings this one in. Can you create a video game without action? I think this is talking about, you know, be it a movie or be it anything. Can you create a video game without I don't think I don't know if you can create anything without action. What do you think, Ranga? What what kind of action are we referring to in this? Right. I would agree point. with that. Because you have like the Sims, right? There's not a lot of action in The Sims or like Sim City where you're building something, but the act, there is action in the sense that things are actually progressing. So I guess it would come down to the definition of action. I'll tell yeah. you one game on PS4, which is um, the least I found to be having containing action. Okay. It's called Everything. And the in the game, you just become things, all living things. So you can either become a planet or a stone in a particular planet. And um, the backlog is of all the quotes of Alan Watts. And that's a game. So I feel like you can experience <laughs> becoming everything just listening to that. <laughs> and that's I pretty don't awesome. think that has action. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's action at some point because you're, you're turning one thing into something else. Your perception into a planet, into a rock or something like that. So I, 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 yeah, I think it really, you know, how do you define action? Or if it's like an action movie, like superhero type stuff, I think there's definitely, you know, to, to what you just said, there's definitely a lot of those games. There's a lot of like mystery type games. I remember way back in the day, uh, what was that? Mystic Isles or something like Mist. Mist. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That was the one. Yeah. You're just walking around for most of the game. Mm -hmm. I Dan wants to know if the game that was just a fish tank would do well. Mm, maybe. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, Farmville, right? That game made hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions of dollars for people just building a farm and having... But they're still doing money. something, right? They're still like... Right, they're or... still action, yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, if you get into the psychological aspects of it, it really, you know, kicks off that dopamine aspect in the brain and it gives these people yeah. little reward drips throughout the day. Random rewards, Yeah, exactly. Candy Crush is the thing, right? I see it's, it's the least amount of action from the participant. <laughs> you know, touch of a button and it, uh, it can keep you hooked on for hours, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I guess there's some sort of mental action. I was trying to think like, you know, when you look, when you watch a fish tank, if you go to the aquarium, it's pretty relaxing. You know, you're just like watching the fish swim and they're all moving in like a perfect kind of harmony with the water. I, you know, I don't know if that would be a game, but it's almost yeah, for a form sure. of meditation. Yeah, for sure. Would you sit down and fire a PS4 and just watch it for two hours? 
two hours. Well, maybe it was a screensaver or something, but I don't think I would sit there and watch it. I mean, it might be in the background, but yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I could come up with, with one like that. Let me, let me ask guys this on the top. Like, it seems to me one way to fundamentally change society is to change the way people think. And the way we do that, or we have done that before is with narratives, like be it God, you know, and most societies or cultures are built around a narrative, be it a divine king or God or religion. Maybe these are the foundations of societies. But it seems to me if if if, if you were to put on a tinfoil hat or just to, to do a thought experiment, like how ha like COVID has changed. And I, I, I wish I could see the research on this. I bet you people have it. But, you know, COVID has fundamentally changed the way people think about disease. And there's probably a lot of probably a lot of um, documentation on what percentage of people got the jab, what percentage of people were able to be confined to their house. There's like they could probably tell a lot just by we had we had every station blast out this message. Here's the effects that it had. And if you had that information, you could do something similar and and get better results like if if you believe that you can do something over and over and get better results because you can change things to make it better then shouldn't you also be able to change a narrative and if the results you want to get is changing behavior you should be able to change people's behavior in steps like that so if you wanted people to rally around a narrative of health you would use things like okay the planet is unhealthy we all have to come together regardless of what race you are of how old you are of your sexual orientation we can all agree that we have to save the planet right right so let's get together and pay this like you could like i can see how some of these huge narratives take place like maybe it is an attempt from people who are passionately care about the world trying to unite people because what right people care about the planet that's one way to unite people another way to unite people is like hey there's a giant virus we're all gonna die you almost have to have these cataclysmic ideas of destruction to bring people together. If you since it's 9-11, remember what happened after 9-11 in the United States? Like everybody came together. Now, granted, we came together to go kill people, but that's what we do. Like we come together when there's a crisis. So wouldn't if you if we were a government, if we were the governing body, wouldn't we try to think of like a crisis to get people to come together? Like don't and if that's true, isn't it probably true that that's what people are doing in, in like the world economic forum and in the United States and China, like, aren't they looking for ideas to bring people together? And don't these ideas of crisis kind of fit that bill? I think they absolutely do. But I think an important point to look in that is that, you know, there's not a singular motive mm. and we can observe that there's not a singular motive uh, because, you know, you will have, you know, these crises, but then you'll also have these transfers of wealth. Mm. So, yes, you know, there is an idea that people want to bring people together, and you can definitely do that via crisis. I mean, I think there's, you know, uh, pain and fear are the greatest motivators. Um, you know, I think love comes in a third, you know, a distant third for a lot of people, um, and maybe even not a third for some. Uh, but pain and fear really motivate a lot of people. And so if you can spark that, that, that fear mechanism in somebody, um, now you have their entire attention, not only the fact that you have their attention, but now if you can perpetuate a narrative to them, they're going to buy into that narrative. 
they're not asking what your motivations are. They're not asking, you know, is just, is this altruistic? You know, it's, and I think, you know, in often cases, especially if we look back in history, we can see that most of these things, if not all of them, are not altruistic at the end of the day. They are enabled to create a movement, to create a response, to create that, you know, economic shift. But at the end of the day, who benefits from that is a, the small group of people. And by and large, there's millions of deaths. There's families. There's you know, property loss. There's, you know, you know, genocide in some cases. So I think there is something to be said about a narrative being able to motivate people. But it also really comes down to, at the end of the day, What's the motivations? Who are the people who are providing that narrative and what are their motivations? Hey, George, uh, when you were saying that uh, you sounded really optimistic, but I don't think that was anywhere close to being the reality for at least COVID. <laughs> I was like, it's definitely not talking about COVID, right? No, because just take this one thing of like, you want to bring people together and one of the most simplistic physical rules where Oh, we're going to maintain distance. It does. It starts from there. So. Right. But at the same time, it did have everybody mentally focused on the same thing, which means they're not looking over here. They're not looking over here. They're just looking right here. So yes. it is bringing people together in a sense. In a yeah, sense. it's like when 9-11 happened, the Japanese, after that, the Japanese enacted sweeping new terrorism laws. The Japanese never had terrorism, right? Interesting. It saw the focus somewhere else and they did, Switzerland did something similar. Switzerland never had terrorism That's and they started pushing that. through all these privacy laws. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems to me without a doubt that, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste in, in even in the United States today, especially in California and New York who have the most draconian laws they're still under a state of emergency. And even in Hawaii, we're under a state of emergency. The reason for the state of emergency is because you have emergency powers when you're under a state of an emergency. That's why every president is a wartime president. That's why there's a war on drugs, you know, so that they can be a wartime president. Because when you're a wartime president, you don't need Congress to, you can start producing executive orders at a more rapid rate. You have less people looking over your shoulder because you're at a time of war. And so even though you're not at a time of war, you find something to be at war at, and then you can have the sweeping legislation that, you know, allows you to raise money or bypass any sort of laws. And I don't know if it's like that in other countries, but I would imagine, and I, that, that this is the pattern that the process that takes us from, you know, a, a republic into a dictatorship is just this long pathway of, of wartime. You know, why don't we have a war on poverty? How about that? How about, a, you know, like people, here's one for you guys. Good. Go ahead, man. I was going to say, people are really easy to train in these situations. I remember after the 9-11 thing in the U.S., maybe it was after the shoe bomber, I can't remember, but all of a sudden you had to take your shoes off and put them through the x-ray machine. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in another country, I think it was Switzerland, and they were kind of making fun of the U.S. tourists in German at one point. I was listening to their conversation. They're like, look, they're so well-trained. You don't even have to ask them. They just take their shoes off and put it through. And it wasn't even a rule there. They're just sort of habitually taking their shoes off and putting it through. <laughs> and so I think the way forward, I'm not sure how to address this. I mean, there seems to be a lack of thinking. 
people do not like to think. People do not know how to think. And until we can fix that, people are going to be swayed by their emotions. And fear is always used to sway emotions. And I know this, like, look at the people around you. They don't, people watch comic book movies because they don't want to think. They want to turn their brains off for two minutes or two hours because thinking is, I guess, painful to a lot of people. Something that people who do like to think. It's confusing to a lot of people. And to those people's credit, they were indoctrinated into a system that did not teach them how to think. I, I agree with that. That's that's exactly it. I think it's when they are learning things in that phase, you're not taught how to think. So you want to you wanna keep certain people there who will tell you where to go because it's easier. In a state of crisis, it's much easier. If you didn't have soldiers, like soldiers are basically our night guards, right? There is a joke. They are basically the first line of people who are going to die. So that they're like alarms, alarm system. They die and buy some time for you, and then you can get, get away. So you need some people who are going to say yes. So, hey, Mr. Wizard, how did you learn how to think? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know how to answer that off the top of my head, but I would say I was always pretty questionable of how things were going. Oh, I, I, I take that back. I know how to answer that. Um, when I was 16 years old, I had a tragedy in my life. My little sister died in a car accident. And after that, um, you know, I started looking at the world in a different way. And um, when people told me that something was true, there was much more of a bullshit meter that went up. Uh, because if that was true, then why, why did this happen type idea? And nobody could give me good explanations of things. You know, there was religion. There was people who said x y and z but it, it all didn't sit well with me and so i went on my own path and i've been on it for a long time since nice How i think you, that Kevin? fits the title right sorry for cutting you paul but okay. tragedy <laughs> tragedy right? tragedy and mm-hmm. most of it i feel like has death in it in some way which starts awakening us because death is for the first time i feel like irreplaceable loss so you have to question it, why it had to happen, especially mm-hmm. when in circumstances where the situation seems so good, at least according to scriptures, let's say, and then something happens, so you question God for the first time. But you can continue, Paul, sorry. No, I was just like, when we, um, you know, in our first conversation a couple Sundays ago, you know, um, we were talking about language and I mean, all kinds of stuff. And I brought up that I felt that, you know, there was a lack of, of um you know people weren't building foundations of knowledge in in their lives me and george have had this conversation many times and you know so you know the 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 thinking process you know never really gets fully developed and it seems like everybody here you know knows how to form an opinion and actually knows how to think and i'm just kind of wondering how how everybody got to this point you know in their lives and 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 maybe why some people don't it's very interesting. I got Go Ranga. Ranga and I were talking um, on Friday, and I think, I think Ranga does something that reminds me of something we probably all do or all have done, or still do to this point. In our in our conversation, Ranga was telling me how he likes to make people feel uncomfortable, but by consequence, he makes himself feel uncomfortable, and like that's the best way to think. Like sometimes we 
I bet you every one of us probably even to this day, but definitely when you were a younger man, you were doing all kinds of things that made people feel uncomfortable, which made you feel uncomfortable, which forced you to have to think about what the hell you were doing or why the hell that person was treating you a certain way. And I think that that fits this idea of thinking like if someone around, if you get a weird vibe from somebody or say you say something to someone that makes them feel uncomfortable, all of a sudden you're like, okay, why is, did I just say something bad? Why is this person looking at me? What are they, do they think I'm a, why? Cause I got long hair. Well, you don't like me because of what I said. All these questions are popping up in your head. And like, that's the beginning, the foundation of critical thinking is like, why, why, what you're mad at that? Cause I said that, why, why, you know, it's this question of why. And some people feel so uncomfortable. Yeah. Self-reflection. I think it is the question of why, but I think, you know, why is buried so deep, especially, I mean, after you're indoctrinated for years and years and years, you know, you're, it's to the point where a lot of places people aren't allowed to ask why. You don't ask why you go to church. You don't ask why mom and dad take you here. You don't ask why they said to do this. You don't ask this, you know, because you learn that when I ask why there's consequences. And so you get, you get beat down from asking why our, our entire lives. And then eventually, you know, I think all of us got to the point where, you know, why became much more important than anybody else's reasoning for why not. And I think that kind of, you know, I think that propels people forward. When, when, when that why gets bigger than the why not is, you know, something that's important. And then, you know, that triggers that self-reflection, that path, that, that inward journey. Yeah, I think you have to, I think why is buried underneath discipline and respect and authority. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to dig down to find why. You have to dig down to find the reason why. And it's buried under respect. It's buried under division. It's buried under respect. Like, you know, and, and, and it's tough to dig it up because people don't want to dig it up. But And, and it's scary. Well, like, it hurts people. To... Yeah. Yeah, you're yes. going to have conflict. You know, yeah. personal experiences, many of them. Um, but yeah, you're going to end up in conflict, especially with people you love and actually did respect or still even do respect. But yet you're still asking why, because something really doesn't add up and it's just not making sense. And, you know, you have to ask that why, because eventually you get to that tipping point. And, you know, sometimes you're going to lose those relationships because you ask why. Yeah, it is yeah, really it uncomfortable. Why enough times and you realize that nobody has an answer to it. Nope. You ask it enough times, did you guys have this thing as a kid? You think adults have it figured out and you grow, grow, grow to become adult and you don't know there is no distinctive point where I you think, become adult. I think most kids have that perception and I don't yeah. think most people grow up. And so I think most people walking around are still kids with that perception. They still appeal to authority. They still look at, if it's not mom and dad, it's it's the government, it's the police officer, it's the doctor, it's the what have you in their life that is some position of authority that they've just relegated their reasoning and rational ability to. It's the expert. They know it's why. the expert. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, we talked about this thing about, you know, divine right, you know, and and to me, it's like, you know, you know, way back when largely, you know, existed because people didn't ask, you know, Mm -hmm. people, people didn't have like, you know, (laughs) that, that sort of, um, 
you know, like questioning of authority or, 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 you know, well, you weren't allowed to either. You would end up on a stake or you would end up yeah, burned sure. or, you know, there was consequences to asking why that are a bit more harsh these days or than these days. Yeah, right. I, I think oh, I was just going to say, thanks for bringing that up. That was actually one of the points I wanted to get to in that whole divine right. Way to tie it back, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, that this is kind of a big difference between the East and the West too. I, I, it seems to me, and I don't know this, but it seems to me that the Eastern traditions have more of a sense of saving face and having harmony and want to have less of a debate about the right or wrong and rather choose to just disagree without arguing in front of people because it can bring shame or disrespect like that where in the Western tradition, it seems like people are willing to argue in front of each other, not to be rude or disrespectful, but just to prove a point. What do you guys well, think? Sometimes to be rude and disrespectful too. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, but I, yeah, there is there is some sort of impetus uh, between the East and the West when you have you know there's they still you know there seems like honor. If yeah. you ask, if you ask the definition of honor to anybody in the West these days, you're going to get probably not a close definition to the thing. But if if you ask people in the East, they're they're very honor bound to you know families, institutions, religions, uh, just social impetus. You know, so I think there is a distinct difference in that, and that would probably hark back to our last conversation about language. What do you think, Ranga? You you seem to be disagreeable at times, and you were born in India. Are are you more disagreeable than people in your family, or what is your take on argumentation? It it goes back to two three things you said. Well, why people do not think right um, because of fear of authority or discipline, mm. and uh, those points were not just random words. Everything has happened in my life that I wasn't able to talk out loud until like two three years back. Like I literally had a heavy public fear and it was mostly because in India, schools are based on the French uh, military system. So first thing is uh, discipline. And one of the funny things I have been thinking about last year is that they taught us uh, March past. I do not know why that was there. There was a NCC, National Cadet something. Uh, and they train you to with things, but they weren't sending us to war or anything, but this was there in schools. Instead of kids having playtime, which was limited to 40 minutes a week, we did this for four hours, right? And you cannot talk back. You know, one good thing was I was interested in going there because I wanted to fit in. I was too small at that point, so they didn't take me. So that turned to, to be a little bit of sadness, but the question came, why did they not take me, mm. right? Mm. And then I still didn't have an understanding because this why question I couldn't convey to a person of authority. Right. So, for example, in my uh, caste or uh, ritual, they have a white thread they wear around the body. I'm curious. I asked my dad why. There is no answer. Like you will understand it one day. <laughs> right. Because because I do not have the answer. It's not. Right. They, they don't. You understand it. You cannot <laughs> confront them. They they are not because they have not talked to themselves. You know, people meet you only as deeply as they have met themselves. I really agree because. I feel like many people that I've met back in India are very shallow with respect to not having shallow ideas or something. It's just they've not done anything with themselves. 
so that's how they interact with people too so there is no honesty from my dad to tell me that he doesn't know so that you know it could have been a joint thing of finding out why it existed but all those kind of helped me to question those right and uh, i honestly had so much uh, fear in talking to people my legs would start shaking considerably i couldn't do anything right i would stay stay in the stage my voice will shiver and all of that because there is a person i know of authority sitting in the audience if it was just my friends it was much different right and all these things i had to break but all the situation is what caused me to break it right it's like what you said about um, traditions uh, george last time so wouldn't you say tradition has been successful because those are the things that made me question it and you know let's say get away from it or something so in that way yeah nothing as um, positive or a negative effect it, it's just there and just it's it's interaction of uh, different uh, things happening it's a dynamic play right in interaction of multiple things happening so it leads to one result but in the in this thing i was watching the good place today sorry for jumping from that but uh, they were questioning about free will and determinism so you know there are so many things that appears deterministic and there is always a question of free will but again all these all the things behind this is as you said judge the question of why why is very crucial that is crucial i'm done I, nothing should be taken at the face value everything can be doubted every single thing yeah i i think that you can you know kevin you have a friend that's been that has read jeb mckenna and become enlightened and a few steps yeah yeah okay so i wanted to tie this to ranga had ranga and i were talking about the idea of of being there and he was asking I'll have him sum it up, but the way I see it, remember, Ranga, do you remember our conversation when you were asking, like, what is the push to get there? Do you remember us talking about that on Friday? Push to like, get there or push to just action? The, the, what is the thing like, that pushes like, us to move? Okay, what, what is the thing that pushes us to move because, and there was a because in there, and the because was like, no matter what, there's no real reason to do anything. I think Kevin's friend, maybe Kevin... Maybe Kevin can tell us about his friend who's who has who thinks he's become enlightened or may have become enlightened, and then you and then I think it'll feed into the ideas that you were talking about. Can you tell us that story, Kevin, about your well, friend and why he thinks the way he does? I think first of all we have to make some definitions, as yes. in what is the definition of enlightenment? <laughs> okay, what is an good enlightened idea. <laughs> because I don't think anyone universally agrees on that, and typically. If you read the scriptures, old yoga texts, and so forth, an enlightened person is somebody who is experiencing bliss twenty-four-seven and is fully awareness, fully in awareness, and has dissolved ego and is love and compassion. Whereas this guy Jeb McKenna, he defines enlightenment as the destruction of the false self, and that there is no self left, and the removal of all emotional attachments. So my friend has followed this path, and he's literally. with effort tried to destroy his own ego and his his false self as he called it and is in this way <laughs> merged with the dream state but not attached to it so i guess those are the two different definitions of it hmm. if he's your friend doesn't he still have no oh. um <laughs> well, <according to> <laughs> 
So in terms of you had a question about motivation and the motivation there is hatred of falsity to destroy everything false, including the self. What's false? Everything, basically. <laughs> so denying reality? You accept <laughs> reality as an illusion. <laughs> it's, it's the question. Boil it down, right? Mr. Let's hear it. Awareness versus appearance. There is only awareness and everything else is appearance. <laughs> hmm. It's like the monks asking, how do I overcome the desire of killing uh -huh. all my desires? <laughs> right. Or you just ask, who am I? You ask who am I forever. That's the practice. Yeah. But then, so that discounts the things like love. Um, yes. So, well, he so says there are two types compassion, of love. There's like uh, the things that we typically hold as good virtues, right? Yeah, because there's no good or bad. Everything is. Well, there's no good or everything. bad. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah. And most forms of love are fearful attachments, according to this philosophy. Huh. Oh, I disagree. I disagree. I, all right. Yeah. Um, so my my take on this whole position is actually fairly similar. I'm no absolutes. There is no such thing as good or bad. There's no right or wrong. Uh, what's right for me is not necessarily right for you. Uh, truth is a relative perspective. Uh, in order for us to know the entirety of truth, we would have to have access to everything that's ever happened at all times in order to say that is actually true. And we are incapable of such a thing. So I approach my philosophy from the, there is no absolutes in that sense, but that does not degrade from the experience because we are all here living in experience and to deny that experience is to deny, you know, everything that we're doing. Does that make you enlightened? Yeah, it might in some regard, I suppose, if you actually think about it, because you're not going to give a shit about what's going on around you. And one could consider that enlightened. However, in my perspective, I would much more rather see the smiles on the faces of you gentlemen. I would much more interact with the people around me. I would much more have love with my dog who, you know, has nothing but joy to bring to my life. And I think denying that there is value in those aspects uh, is to deny this experience and if you were to deny this experience, then why are you here? But uh, I think we can agree that dogs are enlightened. Oh yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, they got it all figured out as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I think in one definition, as Kevin said, right, enlightened being in a state of bliss. I again, it all involves definitions. So without defining. It's, I, I would like to think it's a person who is completely non-reactive and accepting of all things that are happening, right? In that sense, I don't think they are uh, denying the experience to go somewhere. They are just in complete sync with the experience where there is no narrative of what's happening. So they're one with the experience. But um, yeah, there is no choice. Like, as you said, right, I would rather sit with here and have this uh, video. I agree, but it's. I think it's like a choice, right? But Without if you're, the 
but yes. if you're if you're one with the experience, that would necessitate that you are a part of said experience. You would you know be you know experiencing the experience would otherwise you're not a part of the experience. So, for for personal uh, story, I when I first kind of you know went on my philosophy journey and discovered this for myself, I found an exceptional joy in my life. I was in Costa Rica. I had no responsibilities. I owed nothing to nobody. And I was on a hilltop with, I could have sat there forever in bliss. But then there was that little bit of inkling in my mind that said, hey, everybody else is in, in bliss. Everybody, there's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of people that you love that aren't doing well. And so for you to remain here is a selfish act. And I would think the, the annihilation of attachment is the utmost selfish act one could make. That's not to say that, you know, by detaching yourself from things, you cannot have perspective and you gain perspective. And I think that is the path to enlightenment. However, to entirely deny that attachment is in, is perfectly selfish. But I think the journey is about finding that self, right? It's not with the goal of denying the self. It's finding the self. It's yeah. finding the self, but it's not being selfless. Once you find yourself, you are now a beacon. Now you're a light. Now you're now you're uh, now you're are something to lead people to. I don't okay, think Kevin, Kevin yeah. what was his reason for doing this? My friend or the author? Your your friend. I think he'd been on a very, very long journey, um, and multi-year, multi-decade perhaps. And he just encountered this guy who spoke to him because I guess there's a lot of writing that says, look into the heart. You know, the emotions are the way. And this guy says, no, the mind is the way. Emotions are there to deceive you. And my friend is a very intellectual guy, so that appealed to his sense of how the world works. So he basically the idea is use your mind to destroy falsity. And um, I, I just think it, his writing appealed to him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he would say there's absolutely no such thing as balance. He's, he's like, you have to be like aggressively, like obsessed, single-minded, don't care if you survive the process, like go into the deepest, darkest holes of yourself and just till you're done. Even there, there's, there's about about the, oh, sorry. So he talks about this and in, in, in his methodology. Discuss this. I don't know him. what exactly. Yeah. Well, the, the author recommends just writing, like just writing constantly, like just always just deconstructing yourself through writing. I don't know. My, I think, so I assume my friend did the same thing. Okay. okay. Sometimes I wonder if it's backwards. Like maybe you can't be enlightened unless you have attachment. Like the things you recognize in other people are the things you recognize about yourself. Like if you see someone is like, have you ever seen someone and be like, I know what this fucker's doing. This guy's trying to manipulate me. I know what he's doing. You know how you know that? Because you do it. Or you know how like, you know what this girl's doing? I see what she's doing. She's going to be with this person to get back at me. That's something that's the only reason you can see that is because that's something you see yourself doing. So if you really want to know yourself, you have to have been attached to these other people because they're like a mirror for you. You know, and the more attachments you've had in your life, 
the more fuller you are. It's like maybe when you attach to something, then you detach, you take part of that with you. Or maybe you can only untach from them because you've learned the lesson about yourself from them. You know, maybe, right, maybe we have to define what the self is here again. We're getting tricky with semantics. Like, That's what is point. the self, right? This guy is proposing, and a lot of other writers actually propose that the self is just the thing that is aware, just mm. the consciousness. And everything else is like a balloon. Inside the balloon is the self or no self, and your personality and your persona are paper mache newspapers that you throw on it. Sure, but then what's the purpose? No, there's no purpose. And he would even say that. There's no, so there's no purpose, so we should all just kill ourselves and forget about this thing, right? I think it's <laughs> the important question. book is like the only real argument against suicide is that if you fail, you have a big medical bill. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's funny. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's I, I would contend just in all of this that balance uh, is still is still is the thing. Even when you go to the deep dark, even if you go to the depths of space, there is a balance there. There's an equilibrium between all of the things that are around it, the environment that it's encompassing or encompassed by. Uh, so I think even uh, you know in ultimate detachment, it, you still not you still necessitate the need to find a balance with mm -hmm. that attachment to the attachment. And I think that is the path to enlightenment. If I were to put my two cents in. <laughs> yeah, check out the guy. Uh, I enjoy his books. He's pretty funny sometimes. So if you're interested in these topics and want to have a mental debate with him, check him out. Will do. Huh. What Dan, Dan asks, is it, when you talk about self as awareness, would you say, could you use the word observer? Yeah. It's that thing that's just looking. And I mean, you can see it sometimes, even if you try to recall memories, like if you close your eyes, you remember something, that feeling of being there and seeing there, the ageless part of you, that's what he's talking about. Absent all of the culture and thoughts and opinions. There's this thing that's just ageless and always there. Is that, does everybody have an observer or am I other people's observer as well? I have no idea if anybody else has an observer. That's <laughs> I can't say if you're a real person or if you're conscious, right? But I assume that <laughs> This is all a dream, Kevin. This is all a dream. All a dream. <laughs> That's Biggie Smalls right there. The great philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. It, it's interesting to think about. I, I, I always think of Albert Camus when I think of, of suicide, right? Have you read that book, The Stranger, where like he just goes to court and like, you know, maybe he killed somebody, maybe he didn't, but no one really cares. <laughs> I guess you could interpret that like different ways, but yeah, I would go with balance. I think that that seems to be the best pathway for an individual to move through this life because sometimes you're high, sometimes you're low, but the truth is you're, you're probably neither of those things. You're probably always in the middle, right? A good way to look at yourself, at least me, is that I always think to myself, you know what, there's, there's a lot of people who are way smarter and better than me, and then there's a lot of people who are way worse and worse off than me. That's usually the truth, right? Well, I, I would also just kind of lament that with, uh, you know, we don't exist without balance. Without this mm. equilibrium of balance between, you know, the sun, the earth, the biosphere, all of the things that are existing to enable this conversation, we're not here. Uh, can you put up Dan's question again? Yeah. 
because that I, I thought of something kind of interesting. Uh, is it awareness or will? And I think this is a really interesting question to me. And anyway, uh, it strikes me as is this everybody is God or there's a single individual God? Mm, maybe there's both. Or can it be like in the Hindu tradition where there's like a sort of master God and these little sub gods responsible for different areas? Right. And that's, you know, so, yeah, I think that that's a very interesting uh, conversation. Maybe. I think we're all like Voltron. Like we got to come together to be that one guy. <laughs> well, I, you know, in that kind of analogy, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said about together. We're stronger, right? We're able yeah. to hash out a lot of different things. If we were all to try to pick up a rock together, we could definitely pick up a larger rock than we could individually. It's a good point. It's a very good point. What about, let me just grab the wheel and take it this way. Like, uh, I've been having, like, I've been on my mushroom trips lately. I've been having this reoccurring theme. I'm pretty sure I'm an alien. It's like, just, just <laughs> think about this for a minute. Like, wouldn't it make more sense? Like, just think about how crazy the world is. And we think so, of God all the time. Yeah, go ahead. What do you got? Oh, I'm on, I'm actually on the page. I, 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 in my recent mushroom trips, I've, uh, kind of had a similar experience. So it's, I'll just, I'll leave it at that. I'll let you go. Sorry. Okay. But <laughs> so it my... depends. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just going to add that part where, again, it comes to the part where we put a boundary and say, this is home and we are not from here. And that makes us alien. That's so a good point. I feel like sometimes, <laughs> you know, different places of awareness gets trapped in different level of consciousness with psychedelics. Sometimes, you know, uh, state specific memory starts coming back. So it's more redundant. So, the stories are nice, I think, but I truly believe it's just the awareness behind it. And God, in that sense, would be just the resistant against which the quark is making its first motion, and that's it. I, that's would, I, I would agree with you until I weigh that against anthropology and history. Um, in what way? In what way? So are you familiar with the Sumerian Kings list? Mm-hmm. So the Sumerian Kings list. Yes. <clears throat> so if you look at the Sumerian Kings list, uh, their calculations of math and everything are pretty exact with just about everything. Uh, but, you know, the reign of those kings were in, I think the first one was a couple hundred thousand years. And the next one was 40 some thousand years. The next one after that was 20 or 12 or something. And they had a range. And I think it accounts to some, Correct me if I'm wrong, George, but I think it's close to 400,000 years of reigning kings that they recorded. Now, for people who are articulating math in such a very specific manner that they're able to, you know, everything else we've translated is exact, why would this be fanciful? Uh, that's just one piece of evidence. Uh, and when you start to look at, you know, older things on the world, like uh, megalithic sites around the world, every continent around this world has these megalithic sites that are lower on the geographic stratosphere, if you will, than the buildings above them. You know, what we call our ancient societies, like the Incas, the Mayans, and, you know, all of these things, these are societies built upon these ancient structures that are much more precise you know you have these polygonal walls all over the world that you still can't fit human hair into after 
thousands and thousands of years of geologic movement. And, you know, you have things like uh, Baalbek in Lebanon and many other places around the world where it looks like there was some sort of culture that had outdid us in technology to things that we can't even recreate today. Where did that come from? Where did it go? So I think there's, I, I don't think it's just a cut and dry, like the perception of the, of the, the trip, if you will. I think there's a bit more to that story. I, I, I've been reading that and I've watched a documentary on the Sumerian gods and my question comes about thinking about God is uh, from this sentence where, you know, what's the difference between an atheist and a religious person? The religious person says, uh, the earth couldn't have just come from nothing. A God has to be there to create it. And atheist asks, who's created the God, right? So relatively, these uh, we are going in yugas, right, as Hindus uh, describe it, or in mega cycles. So there are things happen where uh, intelligence rises and it goes down and it attains a plateau. It goes, it's a rock bottom and comes back up. I think that happens. And uh, if they were God, why are they not still here? So it depends on how we define but, God, right? So relatively, they could be oh, a different I, creature. I, I don't think it's God at all. I don't think it's God at all. I, you know, uh, most people would call magic you know, just technology that they don't understand. Most people would attribute God to something similar. And if I showed up 2,000 years ago with a cell phone and there was GPS satellites, I would be God. Yeah. There's no question. Uh, I think this was just a different technological age. Uh, yes. And, you know, where that technological age came from, I think, is an interesting question, uh, especially when you start to collaborate that evidence with things like genetic records. Um, you know, 40,000 some years ago, you had Cro-Magnon come onto the genetic record, uh, who was a fully formed human uh, with a pro uh chin, which means that they were agricultural in some sense. Essentially, that's kind of the accepted science. Uh, and But they came from kind of nowhere, whereas you had these Neanderthals and other things that were similar. To, you know, we traced those back to Astropithecus back in the day. Um, but then there was all of a sudden this new species, essentially. Uh, and then you also have things genetically like RH negative uh, phenotypes, right? Um, so are you familiar with those? <clears throat> so yeah. RH negative is, um, you know, there's certain people that have the RH negative component where if they breed with somebody who doesn't, the baby will actually abort. Okay, so it's a very rare number of people who have it. Or... Oh, my my George. my my, da <laughs> my my daughter, uh, my wife is Rh negative, and I'm Rh positive. And when our daughter was born, like there was a real chance they had to go in intensive care, and like she was under this crazy watch and stuff like that. And we were all scared for a while. Obviously, she made it, but what happens is the body attacks like the RH negative sees that being in her body as a foreign invader because the blood type is different and because the mother's nutrients and umbilical cord and blood is feeding that, that, that child, it will begin to attack it at a certain point in time, or it has at least the opportunity to do so. Paul, don't what you told me a story one time about a holiday that the Hawaiians celebrate about potentially coming from the Pallades. Can you share that with everybody? 
uh, the Makihiki season. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, but, you know, it kind of coincides with like harvest and, and, um, basically begins with, uh, the Pleiades rising as the sun is setting. So Hawaiians were like, he's over here on Maui, go Haleakala and, um, on top of Haleakala and watch for the Pleiades to rise when the sun was setting. And then that began the Makahiki season. Um, you know, basically no more war, be on your best behavior, uh, time to celebration. Um, and, and they thought that's because they were being watched by their ancestors and that, you know, they come from the Pleiades. Um, and then, you know, after, after the Pleiades, you know, sets as the sun is rising, then the, um, you know, back time to behaving poorly, basically and doing what they wanted to do as far as war goes. Um, but, you know, I mean, the Hawaiians aren't the only ones that think they're from the Pleiades. You know, a lot of cultures around the world, um, you know, would define their origins as being from the Pleiades. Isn't it, do you guys, any, you guys know who uh, Wayne Herschel is? Mm-mm. Has you ever heard of that guy? No. They started star mapping, basically going around the globe and, and you know, looking at at ancient civilizations and the structures they built and and how they were laid out this goes back to like geographical location um you know giza plateau chichen Itza, Tikal, all these different places around the world and and kind of laying out by by you know satellite photos or you know um you know airplane photos of these places that they all kind of lay out in the design of the pleiades and um, and that the ancient star, which the Egyptians called Ra, is actually a star 283, 271 that you cannot see with the naked eye when you look at the Um, And that that's where people come from. Interesting. That everybody had migrated from that star system. Um, so you look at like ancient Egyptian like hieroglyphic, hieroglyphs, and you see the hunter and the bull and the blazing star of Ra. Well, if you look in the sky, you see like Orion's belt is shining through. Like the like the the seven stars of Orion point to the five stars of Taurus, or sorry, the three stars of Orion point to the five stars of Taurus that point to the seven stars of the Pleiades, which point to that star, the star of Ra. So it's kind of a symbolic thing with like, especially like an ancient Egyptian culture. You know, where the hunters actually shooting through the horns of the bull and and aiming towards the Pleiades. And there's a lot of there's a lot of maps you can look up um, ancient civilizations that actually are laid out that way and have similar type of of um, stories about the Pleiades. Um, yeah, look it up. And a lot of scriptures too. Like if you look at the book right. of Enoch, he gets taken into space, and you know, there's all these people going to the Temple Mount where they communicate. God is always in the sky, you know, and there, the tablets came from the sky. And and if you look at the 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 Muslim tradition when they go and they they dance around the, gosh, I forgot the name of the sacred cube that they dance around, but. Like that, that came from space. Like that's a meteorite. And like, it, it just, 
it seems to me in so much religious connotation that everyone is looking up to see the gods. And, you know, there's well, not people. Just, not just them. Like, if you look at the level one tracing board and, and you know, like the Masons, you know, it's the same thing. It's, you know, laid out in different levels of human migration to planet Earth. Right. You know, primitive migration all the way into the three big migrations up, you know, started 200,000 years ago up to about 50,000 years ago when the last great migration of people came, you know, um, Solomon's ladder, you know, is on there. The plea, the star of David, all symbolic stuff that points to, you know, um, the belief that, you know, humankind may have originally. And it's you not know, just cultures are like, you know, a lot of people, if you look at even like Stonehenge and, you know, Stonehenge has been kind of destroyed over the years. People didn't know what it was. They just saw the major, Parts of it, but there are a lot of other people which also lay out, ironically, you know, to the to the same pattern as the stars of the. It's kind of interesting. First time I ever thought, like, read something and was like, "Wow, it's a possibility of," you know, like sounds more plausible than a lot of other stories that I've heard people tell about the origins of man. And you're you're back to bloodlines and divine right. <laughs> you know, yeah, but. Yeah. Uh, Tarango's uh, earlier point is: Where did they go? You're looking at them like, like that. Right. This is this is the answer to Fermi's paradox. Mm. We're, look in the mirror. We're, hey, Fermi, look in the mirror. That's that's them. They're right there. Where's everybody at? They're right there in the mirror. Like we are the aliens. Like if you think about it, like wh why are we warring so much? Like we it, we're fighting over resources the same way an alien species would come down to this earth and mine all the resources. Like what? What's our what's our What's our affinity with gold? Like, why, why do we love this metal so much? Like, you know, well, I, I mean, think that we were originally brought here as, as part of that migration that I was discussing to mine, to mine gold. Well, you know? if you look at like the Sumerian text, we were, we were created right. to, to do that, right? Uh, and we're not the first iteration of that, according to the, the Sumerian text, where the second or third, if I recall, Akin and Lil. Uh, if you want to look it up, I'm, I don't have it off the top of my head, but uh, essentially, you know, the first ones were, they didn't, uh, I, I forget exactly what it is, but yeah, we're we're a couple iterations down the line. Yeah, three. Yeah. Oh, okay. You got it, Paul. Well, inform us, sir. <laughs> well, I, I, I you're just talking about that, you know, about the, the migrations of, of people. Yeah, they say the Garden of Eden, like if, if you read Zachariah Sitchin, and I know he's been debated left and right, but if you look at the Garden of Eden, it's the same story that Sitchin puts forth in the Sumerian text where they built like the, the, the gods came down here to mine all this gold or they came down here to exploit the planet and they got tired of working. Like we should be we should hide, we should just create a worker out of one of these beings that are here. And so they genetically engineer them. And they they tried multiple ones. And if you look at the story of Adam and Eve, you know it, it reads like that. It reads like that. And and the yeah. same story is in is in the Sumerian text where they create mm -hmm. these beings and they take the rib of one and they make a new one. Well, you know you can take you can genetically engineer an organism like they're they're trying to regrow a mammoth right now by using CRISPR and finding the the. Oh, the DNA actually, inside the bone marrow, right? No, they are, they are doing it. They have successfully sequenced enough of the genome that they can marry it with an elephant. They've 
Yeah. Okay, so this goes like this gets me thinking too. Like <laughs> if we just if we continue to go down the rabbit hole a little bit and we look at some of you know the kings list and some of these kings reigns for thousands of years and you know we we factor in the fall of man and then we think about you know there, there's a guy that was um gosh dang it i can't think of his name i want to say learn the learner lab but i think that's wrong maybe it's called the larimer lab there was a guy that was in the chinese covid lab that was whisked out of there and he is like the head scientist at Harvard and his name's David Larimer. And you guys can look him up, uh, Larimer lab. And this guy, yeah, he's got, um, all his work is on bioengineering and he's trying to find these incredible ways to fuse technology, change the genome so you can last longer. And he was like, he was a huge part of that lab in Wuhan. And he, he recently won, even though he's, He's supposed to be under investigation. You might go to prison. Right. Yeah, discredited. He just won like the uh, the what what's that award people win for making weapons? But it's called a peace prize. The uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I do. Uh... It's the the same thing that uh, the guy won for nuclear weapons and Barack Obama won. But anyways, it's the he just won the Nobel Peace Prize, and you know here he is making a virus that you know, maybe killed people or maybe is experimenting on people. But, you know, maybe the reason he really won that award is because he's found a way to successfully fundamentally change the human genome. And I, I think so that really that, made COVID. Is that what you're saying? This guy's like credited with doing that? Well, well you're, that's going to be, George is going to get some hate now. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, all I'm saying is go look, go look up the guy's Harvard lab. Look up the look up David Larimer's lab in Harvard. Everybody watch this. Do it right now. If I could do it, I would. But if you look up Larimer lab, you'll see all this guy's patents and all the stuff this guy's working on. And then if you look harder, you'll say like, Dude, what the hell was this guy doing in Wuhan? And why is this not all over the front page news? Like, you know, here's a well, here is one of the top. Yeah, yeah, because it was he was doing something. <laughs> <laughs> like there's a there's a connection there that people don't want everyone talking about is what i'm saying and mm -hmm. I, well, I i would highly recommend people look it up it's fascinating sure. oh i'm sure <laughs> that's that's the case i think people are still arguing if they should have their masks on or not so i don't think they care about this yet. <laughs> that's a fair point right <laughs> right yeah, yeah, that, yeah and that's, that's you know, th yeah it's it's there i I don't know. In in my in my height of my hallucinogen hallucinogenic trip, like I just felt as if, and, and maybe this goes to wrong point. Maybe this is me seeing myself for the first time, so it feels alien. Maybe this is me seeing a side of myself that I don't normally see, so it's alien to me. However, I felt as if I was being told my purpose here on Earth is to help out as many people as I can. Like my purpose on Earth is that I'm part of a long history of people that are here to fundamentally change the planet for the better. And then my destiny is to not become some like wealthy, well-known person that chases the dreams of the average person. My, my destiny is to be among people like me that, that, are hidden here to make the world better. And I realize how freaking crazy ego that sounds, but why not? Why can't that be a good destiny? Why shouldn't aliens be telling me that? I mean, they say, <laughs> boy, George, 
is like a leftover of like, you know, from our early existence of receiving information so that we can go to work in the minds from a higher being without actually, you know, the audio communication, like actually physically words and all the rest of that stuff. I feel like it was the logos, man. I, I feel like maybe it's because I read way too much old classic stories about this stuff, but I felt like it was the logos. You read too many novels for one. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is going to bring up a great point. Can somebody here please tell Paul the importance of reading fiction? I'll start with you, Kevin Holt. I don't have an opinion on this, honestly. Okay. Okay. Well, it goes to this motivation, right? It goes back to what we were talking about with language last time. You know, I think fiction I is important because people in real situations get uh, let their emotions go they they don't uh, have a detached detached way of uh, observing the thing they still have a worldly sense of these are real events so i should be angered about it i should be saving it but set in a fictional world i think they are able to give way to understand the meaning of why it's being said i don't need I, a teddy bear i well i i agree to the point that it's a mechanism uh, a mechanism of uh, perception uh, I also think it's a bit more than that. I, I think, uh, you know, when you're talking about fiction and things like this, these are, this is an imaginative process. These are people who are drawing from their environments, uh, the Akashic records. Uh, in my personal uh, hypothesis of how this all works, uh, you know, the field of information where there is the infinite set of possibilities. And when you draw from that and you, even if it's fiction to what we're talking about in our reality, that fiction is just as much a part of that grander whole as, you know, anything that we would consider nonfiction. I, I, I think that it's all, it's all fiction. I mean, whenever you tell a story, <laughs> like you're not telling, you're not telling the real story. You're only telling well, that's one true. side of the story. You go, alien. <laughs> that's right. That, that's why I'm here. This is why I'm here. <laughs> okay, but okay, let's take an example of something like um, Brave New World or something like Animal Farm. Here's a fictional story of what can happen, but it might also be a story of what's actually happening. So anytime you read a point of fiction, especially really good fiction, it paints a picture that may or may not have happened or may or may not already happen. I'll it's take almost 45 minutes of Marvel comics on the big screen. That's <laughs> fiction too. I mean, I, I guess I have to contend with both of those, but I think you could, I think that there is a difference between good fiction and bad fiction, the same way there's a, there's a difference between a good woman and a bad woman, you know, or a good man and a bad man. That's going to be relative to you. Okay, well, here's this. You know how you tell a difference between a, in, if you live in a city that has tall buildings and people live in the city, do you know how to tell the difference between a good building and a bad building if you want to live in one? A good building has a doorman. A bad building has a man at the door. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, it's just a really long yeah. way of making a point. I didn't hear that, Paul. I'm sorry. Fiction to me is just like a really long way of making a point. But, I, you know, in, 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 that, in that long past, 
you know, there's perspectives to that point that people don't always see when they're encountered with it just in day-to-day reality. Agreed. I, I, I think that you can, I think if, if, like I read this guy, Brandon Sanderson, who's got a series of books called uh, like the Words of Radiance. And it's, it's, this guy builds a world that you can participate in if you're willing to let your imagination do it. And in that world, he brings up points that may be idealistic, points that may be happening in our world. And it allows you to see your world from a different point of view. In a way, I think fiction is a hill uh, in the mountain of dreams, if that kind of makes sense. Like you're standing on a hill in the mountain of dreams, looking down at this imaginary. Yes, yes. You know, you're looking down at this at this world that you live in from a different perspective because you've been transported to a different part of reality. And all, you can only see this perspective from a different part of reality. And the only way you can get there is through imagination. And that, to me, is what fiction can do for you if you're willing to suspend belief in reality for a little bit. And if you think about that, we always do that. We may not be aware of it, but we're constantly suspending our belief which which brings me back to it's all fiction man you know and and even the the ability to write fiction i think helps with the ability in language to explain the world you live in because let's face it sometimes reality is stranger than fiction and you know who who would have ever thought that us five people from different time zones would be getting together to help change the world for the better we're in the same time zone, George. Wait, is that what we are doing? Sorry, sorry wrong. <laughs> wrong is like, I, 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 I didn't know we signed up for that. You see, you haven't read the end of the story yet, but I've already got it halfway written out. Oh, wonderful. I don't, I think yeah. it's important yeah, to be fiction. It's the same thing from poetry or music, right? Right, but that's Again, fiction. Forms in, of fiction, in, in essence, right? Right, I, because it's uh, just a depiction of something that's not real. You don't walk down the street and hear music playing behind you, even though that happens in movies. And it would be kind of cool if you had your own soundtrack. Mm. <laughs> George, was, you said the suspension yeah, of belief. Of, that's right. There you go. <laughs> George, you said the suspender belief of uh, reality. Right? Is do we call this part of life reality? Because like maybe in dreams we die, we won't, you know, be actually dead. But in this real life according to stories we have we might be actually dead if we you know do is that why we call it reality so in that case if we suspend our fear of dying would everything become real then instead of fiction wow interesting question i think i think we run into the the inefficiency of or the insufficiency of language there oh no <laughs> right like I, I, <laughs> I think so. I, I mean, you can suspend your belief in reality and, and, and live in your own world. I, sometimes I think that maybe I am a manifestation of a false reality in a homeless guy's world. You know, like I, I don't know if I exist sometimes. I, maybe I am the thing he's laughing at and I have to act it out. I'm not sure. The key word feel? in there is I am. I am. Yeah. I am. Sure. Do you feel? Deeply. Than you are. I like you to think so. Oh, you exist. Yeah. The, right. the, the trick is, can you change your environment 
just by telling yourself a different story. I want to share this story with you guys. Here's oh, something that's like here's a, here's something that happened to me like a few years ago and it fundamentally changed my life. So I was I was on my journey, you know, and I was I was reading a lot of books and um I was taking a lot of modafinil and I was just I, I was kind of at the end of my rope. Like I, I was just getting kind of I was falling in this trap of monotony, right? Just get up, go to work, come home, get up, go to work, come home. And I, I just felt like I didn't have a whole lot going for me. I didn't have a whole lot to live for. And I, I just felt like a drone a little bit. And so one day I'm on the road in my UPS truck and I'm driving and my phone starts blowing up. You know, you know, like sometimes someone will call you once and you're like, I don't know what it is. So they'll call you again. And then they think maybe the second time you'll answer because they keep calling your phone. So my phone rings and I'm driving, so I can't really pick it up, but I look at it and I'm like, I don't know who that is. And then it rings again, and I'm like, I don't know who it is. So I just I keep silencing it. And it goes, this goes on for like the person called, like, no joke, like 15 times. And I'm like, what the fuck? And then, like, so by this time I'm off the road, and then my wife calls me, and I see it's her, and she's like, George, uh, is there something you want to tell me? And I'm like, uh, yeah, someone keeps blowing up my phone. Is everything all right? And she goes, Yeah, there's some people here, like from the CIA that came to came to the house. I'm like, shut up. What, what are you talking about? And she goes, dude, they show me their card and they try to come in the door. Like my, my, and the, my wife's, my wife and my wife's mom were living with us at the time. Or my wife's mom was staying with us at the time. And she goes, yeah, my mom had to like, she had her hand on the door, like get out, get out. And then like the guy just gave us his card. They said that they're looking for you. And I'm like, dude, are you, are you messing with me? And she goes, no, I'm not at all. And then as soon as that part of the conversation goes, my phone rings again. Like I'm like the caller because I have the you know multiple callers or whatever I'm like okay uh, it's these people I'm gonna I'm gonna um I'm gonna see what the hell's going on I love you I'm okay I, I got nothing to hide I love you I'll call you back in a minute and so I click off with her and then I click on and they're like Mr Monty and I'm like this is him they're like this is Agent I forgot his name Agent something CIA and I'm like what like okay how can I help you and the guy's like I I need to see you today and I'm like hmm. How about we meet maybe tomorrow or something? I'm like, I'm at work right now. And he goes, how about I come to your work? And I'm like, that's a horrible idea. You should never come to my work. Like, I don't, I think that's a bad idea. And he's like, well, listen, I, I, it's important that I see you today. I'm like, what's this about? And he's like, well, I can't tell you over the phone. And I'm like, are you, are you, are you messing with me? Like, how do I know you're even real? And he's like, look, I am who I say I am. Um, I just came to your house. And, and then, then, then like, I kind of know. I don't know if he's the real, I know he came to my house. My wife's telling me. So I'm like, okay. I'm like, and I'm scared on my mind. I'm like, did I fucking do something? I'm like, is it because I've, I've been like buying all these books about dissident thinkers that want to take over the government maybe, or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like I just bought all this, these books about technological slavery and the Unabomber maybe. And I'm like, that's not that. And I'm like, did I bought in a bunch of like modafinil offline. And I'm like, that's stupid. They don't want, they don't care about that. So then I'm like, I got nothing to hide. I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah, meet me. I'll be, this is where I'm at. I'm, I'm going to be at UH. Why don't you come and meet me? He's like, all right, we're at. I'm like, meet me at this address. I'll be waiting for you. And so I'm thinking to myself like, fuck, man, this is really strange, dude. And so I park my truck and I, I walk over to where I'm supposed to meet and I'm sitting there waiting for him. And these two younger kids kind of show up. They're younger than me. And I'm like, these guys don't look fucking CIA agents. And so they walk up to me and they do the guy, hey, how's it going? Shows me his badge. And I'm like, son of a bitch, this guy's got a badge. And he has a, he has a manila folder with him. And I'm like, how can I help you, man? And he's like, take a look at these pictures. And so I'm looking through these pictures 
And like, as I, he, there's like, there's pictures of a guy. There's like two guys in there, dude. I have never seen him in my life. And so I'm looking through these pictures. And as I'm looking through the pictures, I'm thinking, dude, is this guy looking at me, looking at these pictures, looking for something else? You know, my mind's just racing. I'm like, what the fuck? And he's like, do you know these guys? And I'm like, dude, I've never seen. I go through all of them. I hand it back and I go, I've never seen these guys in my entire life, man. And he's like, well, can you explain how this guy has your ID then? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking. And I go, yep, I can. I got pickpocketed at the mall a month ago, man. Someone grabbed my wallet. If you don't believe me, you can go to Macy's because they have the guy on camera because he stole my wallet. And then he tried to buy a watch with my credit card. And then, and then I see the, um, like, I see automatically see the, um, the guys get deflated, right? They're like, oh, like they thought they had something on me. You know what I mean? And I'm like, ah, I got him. And so he's like, oh, okay. And I'm like, does that guy have my license and my ID? Cause I'd like to get that stuff back. And they're like, yeah, he's got it. But, uh, you know, we, I don't, we don't know if we're gonna be able to get it back. I'm like, what, what's this guy, what has he done? I mean, you guys are trying to track him down. You're with the CIA apparently. Like, what has he done? They're like, he's up to some pretty bad stuff, man. And we can't really talk to you about that right now, but if we can get your ID back, we'll get it to you. And like, that was the end of the discussion, you know? Wow. I had, yeah, it was kind of a trip. And so, but here's where the work came in. Like, so then they leave and I think to myself, like, wow, that was so weird, man. Like for a minute, like I felt like I was like this undercover criminal. <laughs> like I had done something crazy. <laughs> You know, I felt like I, I was. And then, then part of me is like, fuck, I think I was smarter than those guys, man. I think I could have done something. I bet you I could have. If I tried to, I think I could have fooled those guys. You know, I came up with that pretty quick. I bet you I could have fooled them. And that thought stayed with me. And when I got home that night, like I kept thinking more about it. And I'm like, you know what? Like, even though that was scary, it felt pretty exhilarating. Like for a minute in my mind, I was like, and in those guys' mind, even more importantly, those guys thought that I was some international criminal, man. And, and, and you know what? If I was, it wouldn't have been for the crimes they thought. It would have been for something way cooler than that. Like, I would have been like a <laughs> robbing banks across the world. I would have done something crazy. And then, I like, and it just stayed with me. I'm like, okay, I thought I was that guy. They thought I was that guy. I thought I was that guy. I played around with that idea. Fuck, I could be that guy. I could, I could live an exciting life as a international mm. lunatic that gets away with stuff and that's way more exciting than george the ups driver and like so like i just started i kept that idea in my mind and i was like what else would i do if i could do that well i'd probably live in a giant house i'd probably have a super fucking awesome car you know what i my wife probably wouldn't have to work a full-time job you know and then and it, i just my mind blew up and it opened up this area in my mind for me to imagine things and like ever since then it, it, it really blew up this concept of imagining myself as something greater than I've ever thought of. And that was okay. the first catalyst I've ever had with it. And like, I think my, the reason I'm telling you this is like, that is a fiction. I told myself that changed my life. And I think that fiction, be it a, something that happens to you or a story you tell yourself about yourself can manifest incredible changes in your life. Hey, George. Yeah. Sounds like a twelve-year-old fantasy. <laughs> I was gonna say. I was gonna say. This is George telling us all we're on the list. <laughs> By association, man. I wasn't guilty, and you know what? I would say it was more like a twenty-eight-year-old fantasy, Paul. Like I think that it was a little bit cooler than that. Like I didn't turn into an animal. You know, I didn't well, have superpowers. Like, oh, I couldn't shoot like, like, sort of like you know Austin Powers. You know, superhero. 
I was going for James Bond, but I'll go with that. He's, you know, you know, something like that. But it's the point is, it's still a fiction, you know, and it's it's it, it may not be as fiction as as the Incredible Hulk, but it, it is a fiction and it is a fiction I told myself. But I, I think that's important, man. I, I think that that shows the the importance of imagination and, and creativity and in. And fantasy, man. Yeah, why not? And fantasy. How much time did you spend on that? I still think about it, man. Like, it, like it's amazing. Movies. What's that? You should have went to the movies. Well, then I would have lived someone else's fantasy. They would have, they would have put someone else's stuff in my head. You know, instead of spending years like thinking about this, you could have got it all done in about an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah, but I wouldn't have had the changes that I had. You know what I mean? Like, this is my movie. This is my, I'm 009 and a half. You know what the I mean? Hero, the hero's <laughs> journey imagined. Yeah, yeah. Which which leads its way into having real changes in your life, right? Like you can't go anywhere without a linguistic pathway. And you oh, have wow. to at least think about things before you have that linguistic pathway. I thought you were going to start talking about how um, if you change definitions, you change reality. You want to talk about that, George? Yeah, let's do that. Like, I think you can. <laughs> yeah. You could define tragedy as, as you know, if you see tragedy as something that is debilitating, you know, you're going to be debilitated about it. But if you define tragedy as an opportunity to become better, you know, you're, you're going to use it as a catalyst, right? Is that fair to say? I think that's an extreme, extreme, extreme measure of that. I think, you know, we can actually... Oh, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, sorry. No, no, I, was, I was disagreeing with you, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, I was going to say, you know, but I think we can look at, like, you know, the redefinition of what it means to be a Nazi in, in today. Yeah. Um, yeah, for a long time, to be called a Nazi was the most horrific adjective one could be described. Uh, however, now it's it's thrown around like candy. And term, so it, term it, of it does, huh? What'd you say? Of endearment. <laughs> yes, in some, some in some parts, yeah. <laughs> so you know, I think you know, in in that depiction of things, especially in like the places where it is thrown as a term of endearment, you're going to see uh, a, a change in response to that to that word, to that idea, to that information. So I, you know, our words very much define our reality. Uh, I would more, like to, I would like to enter into the record. I think anybody who calls someone a Nazi is worse than Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> what a statement! Yeah, a I statement. mean it too. What a statement! <laughs> Interesting, huh? I'll think about seconding that. I'll think about it. I have to evaluate it. Jesus, I, you know, you I, I understand where you're coming from, though. On the surface, I get it because if you're willing to take all of that moment and put it into a word and throw it at somebody with just malintent. I mean, what does that make you? So I, I see where you're coming from. I still have to evaluate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, definitions are changing all the time. Like, you know, you could read, Look at the way people read Marx today. Like there were a lot of people oh, that that read Marx one way and then today read it another way. Very you different know, way. Yeah, right. 
it's it's interesting to think about the way and is that is that that's definitions changing right like the the right. book hasn't changed it's, it's a just a reflection of, of culture and society i think people are using marx's like terms his definitions the way he described things differently today for sure Absolutely. i think well, i mean people are using marxist language they don't even realize they're doing it right because it became part of an indoctrination process yeah it became yeah. the way that you know people talk about things What do you think, yeah. Brother? Yeah. Go ahead with it. Words, yes, it's quite interesting. I I think um, that's why journalism is one of the things where you're, if you're able to get it out there, you're able to have a structure to your emotion, right? Emotions are a way in which your subconscious is kind of communicating to you. And so instead of reacting, we try to formulate it into words which are maybe the conscious part is able to analyze it better so people can write it. In the beginning, it seems helpful, but it also turns out to be limiting at some point, I feel like. So everything is a tool. I think it all comes back to, as you were saying, right, having a balance. So yeah, you, you said uh, using that word Nazi against someone. Now I, have, I compare the whole upper caste of uh, India called Brahmin, that Brahminism is just Nazism, hidden, hidden right. Nazism. It's a more cunning way of Nazism, but... Uh, <clears throat> It's based on from which part it comes. Is there an energy behind it? I could just uh, use any word right now without intention to use it, right? So just because of the knowledge of the word, I can use it. But does it convey the meaning? It depends on much more than just words that come out. Mm. So it's, I think it's, it's a dance of many more things. Like uh, honesty takes a personality of spirit. Like if the person is not honest and words come out, those words are like meaningless, like nice. It's just a disturbance, right? Indeed. So we invite different things to the conversation. Absolutely. Do you think that emotions are what change definitions? Mm. Not entirely. No. I think it plays a part for sure because if uh, you know people are going to be emotionally charged about something, they're going to be much more passionate about it they're gonna they're gonna involve much more of their attention and energy into it and i think that will alter the perception of the definition um but i think there's a little bit more that goes into it too i think there's underlying factors i think there's you know socioeconomic there's cultural mm. there's all these other factors that play into that as well and as on top of intention you know to Ranga's point about where that's coming from but uh, you said socioeconomic, uh, it, it does involve in a group population. So in that case, words definition have different meaning. But when we come to individual level, I think emotion and words have direct correlation. For example, when I was God-fearing, God was a bad word. The way I defined it was limited to the manifest form as per Hindu tradition, and I was getting caught in those definitions. But if the thing you're able to understand from fear, how to go to love and perceive the same thing, the definitions change for you. So I feel like at an individual level, what's happening within, uh, it has a definition. And then with another person, the definitions change, right? And with group, the same words, like on the outside, it might be like, but the stories are different in different people's head. So it's kind of a magic. That's how I see it. Like we, we might think there are four people here talking and it, it has a central thing. 
it might have a hint of centrality to the conversations but each one have their own stories going in their head absolutely based, based on my perception being trapped in certain parts for me the focus would be on certain set of words that would be i would find it more effective so i might be able to respond better to those words than others i guess right but i i would also push back a little bit in that context your internal self perception of those things is going to be a reflection of the environment around you of the culture around you of the of the of the conversations that you're having 100% i agree because we are nothing but um, sometimes that's why i said there is no free will it's all deterministic where you are nothing but uh, as you said the whole world is a mirror to show you and you are nothing but a mirror that's showing the whole world back to it so we're not just a mirror where i would i would call it transceiver we receive and we transmit yes yes mm-hmm. <laughs> i think mostly it starts off as mirror if self awareness is lacking it just turns out to be a wall that's bouncing off the ball or a mirror that's reflecting so it's predictable so if self awareness builds then you become a receiver or you say there are different frequencies are there and i can receive everything and still choose no action towards it no response towards it i don't know I, i'm raising a little nephew right now and he's he's 13 months and he's he's a sponge he's a receiver for sure right and he's not receiving any sort of anything but beyond what he can perceive emotionally which is really interesting so you know watching him all of a sudden be able to walk now and be able to point at things and recognize certain phrases that i can say but he can't communicate back uh i would either- i would disagree with that i think that you can use hand signals like i think that i i know with when our daughter was even young like you can you like if you begin to show them like this one oh, means no. milk Oh, right. like I was saying, he points at things. He yeah, had, he yeah, asked yeah. me for food, you know, right. like yeah, he, yeah. he has different, so he's communicating. Okay. Um, but it, it it's much more of a, it, it's a reflective thing. Yeah. Okay. It's, I'm a, with it's, you. it's mimicry, uh, you know, and then that mimicry gives birth to intuition. Mm. I always but, believe mimicry is one of the uh, highest most forms of flattery. Well put. 100% that is there yeah. and it also the way we learn right most of the stuff you see resultant in society is people trying to copy others right status game comes to that right i have to maybe that's where it lies so i'm going to copy and it's the primal form of learning which people are using but i think th- there is certain forms of learning that uh, you know gets overused as you grow up from developmental stage to let's say while you're able to your prefrontal cortex is fully developed and now you're having a complicated view of the world so i think it's much different than when we talk about kids absolutely and i think you know there is a break in there when eventually you can speak you do have language you do have all of these things and that and when the world doesn't continue to reflect back the best ideals the best language it, it, and then it reflects certain very narrow passages of language and experience you know that's when we kind of get dissuaded from this path yes and i think that ties up to the fiction part right this is where when the reality doesn't make sense to your language we want to listen to fiction to still have that hope i think it all comes hope, that's a wonderful how, word how mm. did you no this is basically george predicted i think he saw the conversation before he went out picked up the towards yeah i'm going to we're going to talk about divine rights tragedy yeah. hope and life I guess. Life, life yeah. itself. 
I'm, I am an alien, you know, so. You're slowly convincing me, so, yes. So on the topic of mimicry, like, isn't that also the way in which technology seems to be developing? Isn't it like biomimicry? Like we're trying to fly like a bird. We are, you know, we learn, even though we don't have the same exact methodology as the animals, we are trying to mimic biology. And a lot of times it, it falls short of oh, biology. Many times. Most, in, in most my, of the times. Most of the times. Our best systems are when we can most closely mimic the natural right. order of the world in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and it, it, if you look at it from that angle, we're doomed to fail with things like the metaverse. Like, you know, you're trying to mimic reality. You're trying to mimic a ecosystem. Like, <laughs> And we're not even close to being <laughs> able to do that. <laughs> let's put all our money and let's put all our eggs in this basket. <laughs> but look at our track record. We always get it wrong. You know, look at his story, right? History, like we always get it wrong. Why would this time be right? but you can't you can't get it right until you know what's wrong yeah that's right and it's the spiral we're moving up we're moving that's up right. right we're like the jeffersons it's a helical <laughs> it's a helical model so. that's right <laughs> i wonder if, if if we bring it back to the idea of self-reflection and reflection in the mirror like we mimic we mimic we and then once we get to a certain stage all of a sudden there's no more magic in mimicry. So we begin to try mm -hmm. to project our own image onto the world. That that seems like it's it's a rite of passage or it's That's, it's a noticing or something. So I you know, you know, some people call you know the psychedelic experience the true like when you really have that, the you know, looking into the black mirror or traversing mm. the abyss, right? And these are the points, these are inflection points where now you're not you're not mimicking. Uh, now you are, you know, you're you're taking in all of the different variables, all the information, all of the energy, all of the perspectives, and you are postulating, you're hypothesizing, mm -hmm. you are uh, innovating, you are iterating, you are doing all of these different factors of life that allow progress, um, not just that, like uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, technical point of view or a uh, consumerism point of view, but a personal point of view, more important. Yeah. And I think that, like, like when I told that story, I think that, that was like the first time I saw a different reflection of myself. And maybe that's a good way to explain it is like, hey, here's me from a different angle. Whoa, I've never seen that side of me before. And, and But you, you could know, imagine it. Yeah. Yeah. And once you can imagine it, you know, all of a sudden, now I have a way to explain it. Now I have a way to move towards it. Now I have a way to manifest it, even or if it's not the exact image. Or mm -hmm. move away from it. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. That I can't tell you how many times I've thought about things that were horrible. and be like, I would never do that. But why am I thinking of this? Like, that's a pretty crazy thing to think about. And I still think about it. I should, I'll never <laughs> do it, but I still think about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. But at the same time, that allows you the perspective to understand your choice to not do that. That's a great point. I never thought about it like that. Because if you yeah. don't understand the choice of why you want to do it, then what's 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 stopping you from doing it? You know, and, and it's so like many people story about the CIA, you know, and you had some like wild fantasies after you had that experience. You know, that there are a lot of things that we think about, like in the deepest, darkest parts of our mind that may be like 
you know, um, unaccepted by society or things that could be really, you know, dangerous for us or whatever. And we like to flirt with those things. It's just like oh, you even relish some of them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Even relish some of those things. It's human nature. It's like if we're not willing to test the boundaries, you know, physically, sometimes the only alternative is to test them mentally, you know, and, and have those fantasies as if, you know, oh, I could do that or I would do that or hell no, I would do that. Yeah, it's a good point. It is a good point. Well, gentlemen, I love talking to you. And I, 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 like I say, I could always, I could talk for another two hours. Like I, I really <laughs> find it rewarding and enjoying, but I have someone more important to talk to in my life. And that is my <laughs> wife. Oh. I love you guys. Oh. You know what? I love my <laughs> wife and my kid more. So I am going to. Fair enough. We'll work on that. Yeah. <laughs> work on your reflections. Okay. <laughs> See, become the alien, become the alien. Uh, anyways, let's start off. Where can people find you, Benjamin? And uh, what do you got coming up and what are you excited about? Uh, BenjaminCGeorge.com for all of my works and misadventures. Uh, new podcast coming up soon. All these people will be featured on it at some point. So tune in and have some fun. And I hope everybody has a wonderful rest of their week. Rongo, the hours that it is. <laughs> yes. Rongo, what are you up to? What do you got coming up and what are you excited about? Where can people find you? Just, just embarrassment coming up as I say one more time. The podcast is coming soon. But apart from that, I don't think just the way I didn't have any uh, way to define today, I don't think I I also am in the mood to do anything. So <laughs> just being couch potato. Wait for the time, brother. Wait for the time. Yes. <laughs> Look for the reflection. Mm-hmm. Paul, where, I, where can, if someone wanted to buy some queen bees, where can people find you and what? you got coming up and what are you excited about uh no one can find me really anywhere um <laughs> that's probably good too <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And, i don't know what am i exciting about excited about uh, next next sunday two o'clock boy <laughs> what a beautiful promo podcast. thank you i don't you know i don't know yeah you really can't find me i keep it that way so good um, for you yeah <laughs> <laughs> i wish <laughs> I don't know. I've been working really hard on this for a long time, you know. The phone is you are on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, and if I got rid of all my like spam email, I'd probably get like you know maybe like four emails a week. I get you know maybe the same amount of voicemails, and 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 that's it. That's how I like it. Nice. I I think we all know where we can go if we want to get away for a little bit. <laughs> so if you want to contact Paul, talk to George. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Amazing. All right, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Um, I'm super excited. Uh, I've got I'm super excited to have all you guys on board. This is a great time. I got some great podcasts coming up. Um, I got some guys uh talking about ketamine. I've got um Rick Strassman coming on. I've got a couple other. I got a tattoo artist from Poland coming on hopefully soon. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for the future and I'm excited for tomorrow and I'm excited for all of us. So that's what I got for today. Thank you for spending time with the True Life Podcast. Dan Hawk, a special thanks to you. Eric Crawford, thanks to you. And we will be back next Sunday. Aloha. Okay. Yep. Awesome. Aloha, everyone. 
Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.